There are many different kinds of fishing, but fly fishing seemed to me to be the highest form of the art, sport, hobby, whatever you like. This is probably due to the 1992 movie A River Runs Through It. The poster for the movie depicts a fly fisherman, almost entirely in silhouette, standing on a boulder somewhere in the Rocky Mountain Rapids. Water rushes past him on either side of the boulder, and he's framed against a wall of giant, out-of-focus pine trees. Illuminated against the green is the sharp white fishing line. The fly invisible, but the line floating in a series of curls, loops and waves that are like perfect aerial calligraphy. Next to the line, in a classic serif font and block lettering, is the title, A River Runs Through It. This fishing trip was not going to be like A River Runs Through It, at all. No matter how pragmatic or bullshit-free a fly fisherman or woman may profess to be, I believe that people choose fly fishing over other disciplines because they want to be a part of that mystique. Competition fly fishing for smallmouth bass with a conventional rig and plastic lure is the NASCAR of fishing. Fly fishing is Le Mans. And like the world's oldest endurance racing event, fly fishing takes some stamina, as I was about to find out. I walked into Just Like Papa on Wednesday morning to catch a lift with Thomas up to Karul's Kral fishing camp. I had been given a five-day fishing pass by my wife, who would be taking care of our 16-month-old son, while I stood in a river and drank beer. That is a gift that cannot be wasted, and will definitely be paid for, so I was determined to have maximum fun, catch maximum fish, and take maximum naps. By the end of the trip, I would do two of those things. Thomas's Land Cruiser was already packed with a huge amount of gear. It's a khaki-coloured monster of a machine. Thanks to its huge tyres and raised suspension, I had to climb into it to pack in my bags. One of those tent things was attached to the roof, making it even taller. The words Just Like Papa were printed in blocky capitals on the back of the tailgate, perfectly suiting the Toyota's workmanlike looks. No, okay, sorry. dude, John. Yeah, nice to meet you, John. Nice to meet you. You fly fish before? Yeah, a truck, but not, not for these... Uh, Giant sea uh, motherfuckers, yeah. yeah. I would be driving up the East Coast with Tom and Danny. Danny's an old friend of Tom's, he works in finance, and he flew down to Cape Town from Johannesburg to join this trip. Karul's Kral is on a farm just outside Vitsant, 277 kilometers and three and a half hours away from Cape Town. I quickly learned that most of the mountain of gear in the back of the cruiser was just going along to be photographed for just like Papa's Instagram page, newsletters, and so on. I was introduced to Ryan, who has a lot of fly fishing experience and would be taking the photos. Over the next few days, I would come to the conclusion that Ryan has the coolest job in the world, going on adventures to exotic places around the world and getting paid to take photos of them. Ryan was in his own car, so Tom, Danny and I set off in the Land Cruiser, Danny riding shotgun, me in the back. And here was the first thing I learned in five days of not catching a fish. The pleasure of chatting to two guys, one of whom I don't really know from a bar of soap. I've been in two bubbles recently. The first is the pandemic bubble, and the second is called being 40 with a kid. I don't meet a lot of new people on a day-to-day -day basis, and meeting and becoming friends with everyone on the camp will always be the best part of it for me. Although that might not be the case if I'd actually caught a fish. The final approach to Vitsan can be shortened by turning off the N2 onto a 70 km long dirt road. Thomas maintained a comfy 90 to 100 km an hour over the lightly corrugated track, the Land Cruiser just as comfortable as if it had been on tar. Two-thirds of our way along the track, our first adventure was waiting. A nice old lady had stopped to look at the view of the rolling wheat fields and had locked herself out of her car. We stopped, offered our help, and spent 20 minutes breaking into her car with a combination of fencing wire, fumbling around, 
and not taking no for an answer. Eventually, yes. Hey. We stopped at Vitsan supermarket slash petrol station slash post office to buy some saltwater fishing permits and to meet up with the fourth member of the party, Sergio. Sergio is a fashion influencer with over 500,000 followers on Instagram. And if there was anyone on the trip with less outdoor experience than me, it was him. You can look him up on Instagram under at whatmyboyfriendwore. Final preparations done and booze purchased at the adjoining bottle store, we headed back up the dirt road and then turned into a farm with a small shark sign painted on its gate. The farm is a patchwork of lucerne fields recently harvested. The bare stalks stretch out over rolling hills and down to the riverbank. The camp lies in a gap between the hills, a triangle of grass, devil thorns and ticks about 200 meters wide. We were greeted by Andre van Veek, owner of Lucky Bastards, the fishing tour company hosting us for the next five days, as well as his business partner Platon, who's Greek, and I hope I pronounced that correctly. Both are producers in the film industry when they're not building their side hustle, and both are incredible hosts. We all gathered in the main braai area, and I got to meet the last member of our group. PJ is the owner and head chef at the Varda Smokehouse and Bakery on Spear Wine Estate, and also a friend of Tom's. After the first few beers were cracked open, Andre settled us down for a briefing. Uh, yeah, welcome to Karul's. Thanks for joining us. It's lovely to have you all here. Just wanted to give you a bit of an orientation about where, what, how, and where we are here on the Breda River. So I think Henke explained to you as well, this, the farm that we're on is one of the biggest frontages here on the river. And why we're blessed with such a great position is basically because we're positioned between the mouth of the Breda, there's a lot of inflow and outflow of salt water and fresh water in and out on your full, your pushing tides and your receding tides, high tides and low tides. And we're kind of at the best portion of the river here where you get the good mixing of a lot of the water coming down and the salt water coming in. So we're in a very much a tidal zone, you'll notice. When we get down to the water, we'll do a little walk down there and sort of orientate you a little bit. We're blessed with a couple of things here, which makes this such a great place. A, being able to camp down on the river here. There's very few places like this along the river. We're blessed with a few different spots that offer us a huge variety of fishing, depending on the tides and depending on the winds. Obviously, we're all fly fishing. Wind is obviously something that we're going to have to contend with at some point. It makes life a little bit difficult here and there, but we are blessed with a few different areas to fish, which helps us out. So I'll show you the maps just now, but just to orientate you, first off, we've got Nivelland, which is this bay in front of us, which we'll show you, and I'll show you on the map. The second little bay is a much smaller one, slightly upstream from us, which is called G Bay. Then there's a point, and then we get to some really deep water along the ledges, which is the Cobb Ledges. So the amazing thing here is it's one of the best places in the entire river for Cobb, and it's one of the few places you can actually target those Cobb from the shoreline. I mean, it's where the guys want from, the boats want to fish and everything. So as fly fishermen, as land-based fly fishermen, it's one of the best places to be on the river. Then the Cobb Ledges run up a little bit, and then we stretch up into a huge, big, long mud, uh, mud flat, which is called the Plot. And we have Leary Lane on the top of that. And then the property basically runs all the way to the power lines, which once when we walk up around there, you'll be able to see. So here's one way that this trip was not a river runs through it. Brad Pitts and his family were fishing in the Rocky Mountain streams of Montana while we would be fishing in a tidal estuary. The three target species here at this time of the year, our main targets are going to be Grunter and Cobb. Obviously, the Breda estuary is one of the most important systems in the country. 
from uh, feeding, breeding, all sorts of perspectives, specifically for the cob. Also part of why we are very particular about how we handle the fish, not just catch and release, but how we actually handle the fish when they get caught, keeping fish in the water, keeping fish wet, handling them well, for wet, whether it's taking photos or anything like that. It's also a reason why we all fish barbless hooks for cob and for the grunter, preferably. It's safer for the fish. It's also safer for the anglers. Pulling a, a hook without a barb out of your skin is pretty easy. One with a barb is not much fun. You can do it, but it's not much fun. So those are our two main species. The third species would be Garrick or Learfish, uh, Learies. This time of the year, we, it's still a little bit early for us to have a lot of them in the system. As we get later into the season, we'll start getting the bigger fish that will start coming in. But our main focus is going to be on the grunter and on the cob. One of the things I find fascinating about anglers is that their obsession turns them into experts in marine biology, ecology, botany and climatology. Then they turn around, look at a fly they've spent months inventing and call it a sex dungeon, articulated butt monkey, gurgler, woolly bugger, beast fly, semper fly, ultimate candy, drop shot my ass, and of course... And the way we fish for them over these flats is with typically a floating prawn fly. It's been nicknamed the turd over the years because it literally looks like a floating turd that comes drifting down the river. And they move in a very smooth, unlike a shrimp or a crayfish or a lot of the other crustaceans that would flap their tail to try to jerk backwards like that. It's these mud prawns have got all those little frilly bits underneath here and they basically tuck all their legs in forwards like this and they move forward as opposed to shooting backwards. And it's very much just the slow, steady movement that they'll swim along for a while to try and get away from that danger zone and then sink themselves down and try to find another hole to crawl into. So when we're fishing the mud the, for the grunter with these turd flies, floating prawn flies, it's, you know, make as long as cast as you can. And basically the easiest way to fish for them or to retrieve rod under your arm. And it's just a very, instead of doing a, your typical fly fishing strip like that, you tuck the rod under your arm and you're just going to basically do a slow, what we call a roly-poly retrieve. And you're just wanting to get that prawn to just slowly cruise in a straight line and not jerk along. You can even let it sit for a little bit, let it drift with the current or the wind and then slowly move it again. Learning about the fish and how they hunt is fascinating and it enriched the entire experience for me. Once you feel them hook up, which you will feel because a grunter, when he eats a fly and he feels the hook, they take off very quickly. So it's, we fish quite light for the grunter in terms of tippet, like your final leader strength. It's important just to let that fish, you know, make sure you've hooked up to him, but then just let them go a little bit. It's not the kind of fish on the leaders that we fish that you can just hold because they'll, they had that first burst of speed is pretty fast and they can snap you off pretty quickly. Just be careful, they do have some very sharp spines, specifically on their dorsal. They are beautiful little things, um, or big things. If we tie into some bigger ones, you're very obvious to hear what, see why they're called grunter, because they're noisy little bastards, and they <coughs> which is the crushes, the pharyngeal plates in the back of their throat, which they use to crush crabs and prawns and things like that. Then we move on to cob. I would say probably the hero species, and I'd say this is probably one of the best places in the country to target them. Not an easy fish to catch, Henke's favorite saying is cob are easy to catch, they're tough to find. So most of what we'll do, the concentrating on the cob will be early, early, early morning. So in the dark, fishing into sunrise, and then late afternoons, evenings as well, from late afternoon sunrise, sunset into the last 40 minutes or whatever of darkness. Legally, we're only allowed to fish here half an hour past sunset. We did not wake up early, early, early and fish in the dark, thanks to a merciful spring tide that vetoed the idea. Any of you who've ever fished 
conventional tackle like drop shot or bucktails or things like that, we basically fish a similar thing. Bouncing them off the bottom or fishing those flies slowly and bouncing them off the bottom. As it gets towards lower light and into darkness, we fish the same way, but then we also look at fishing patterns that'll sit more elevated in the water, patterns that will flies that push a lot of water. But push, we mean that they've got a big presence in the water, so they create a lot of vibration. Carp very much feed with their very prominent lateral lines so they can pick up the vibrations. So we fish bigger flies with quite a lot of bulk to them, so they create a lot of movement in the water and a lot of pressure in the water. And those carp actually start feeding off the surface. And you can hear it. It's, I mean, it's an amazing noise. It's a like a, it's a full implosion feeder. They come up and they just open their gills and, and you can hear that noise. And if we get conditions right, then we actually look to start targeting them on the surface. We have flies that are literally floating and we get them to sort of skate along the top like a mullet cruising along and poof, inshallah, a cob comes along and sucks one of those things up. Unfortunately, I never got a recording of a cob striking and wasn't even present to hear it myself. But I did get a great recording of a grunter, which you'll hear a little later. There was, however, one more fish that I hadn't heard about until that moment. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously everybody knows about the bull sharks in the system and and it's wonderful that they're here. I mean, it proves that it's a healthy system. And touch wood, there hasn't been any issues with people. I mean, with the the guys fishing off the boats have a lot of their cob and grunter eaten by by the sharks. But considering the number of people over the last however many years that have been wade fishing from, or water, you know, all the way up here, no one's ever been hassled by a shark, but we don't need to set any records and be the first people. So, yeah, just be aware. Don't go wading out this deep. It's totally unnecessary and it's completely di- going to make life very difficult to cast. As he makes a good point. You know, if you see them down on the flats, cruising around, you see this big-ass shark fin just swimming around. It's, it's pretty awesome. So, yeah, you kind of consider yourself fortunate to see them. But... Yeah, no, they, I mean, it's a big, awesome creature and it's, they're not here to eat us. They're definitely here to, to feed on the cob and the, and the, uh, the grunter. Also, there are quite a few seals in the system. So you do see the odd seal pops up. So don't shit yourself when suddenly, you know. Turtles as well. Turtles. There's a few turtles. Planted in the ground, just behind the braai seating, are three tall signs surmounted by three wooden cutout fish. Underneath the cutouts are rectangular boards with hundreds of steel washers screwed into them. Most of the washers are plain steel, but some are covered in a piece of red tape. Yes, sir. What's all the story with all so these those washers? Are, those are caught fish. Okay. The reds are over a specific size. So this red on the cob is over a meter. Right. Grunter is 70. Yeah. Yeah. So grunter over 70 centimeters is a red. And then the leary's 80. 80 centimeters, which will give you a, which they're not a huge amount of them in the system. That's more January, February, March that we start looking at the news. With the briefing complete, it was time to learn the most identifiable, mysterious, and pretty dangerous element of fly fishing. I know some of you guys might be fa- new or fairly new or completely new to fly fishing. So we'll, I think the best thing is before we actually get on the water is maybe just spend a little bit of time doing some casting just on the grass, not even on the water, because then we're not having to think about, oh, fuck, there's a fish or rather get you know, we've got plenty of space here. We can actually get the wind in the right direction. Just get you guys set up so that you're feeling a little bit more comfortable. And then we go out and catch some fish. We trooped out to the dirt track where Andre took up station holding a thin, whippy fishing rod. If you've ever done any other kinds of fishing, the most remarkable thing about a fly fishing setup is the line. 
Instead of thin, nearly invisible monofilament, Andre's line was as thick as a matchstick and light yellow in color. The big difference between regular fishing and fly fishing is the line. So instead of just having normal line like this, you have this heavy weighted thick shit, which comes in all sorts of forms, floating, sinking, slow sinking, intermediate, fast sinking, all sorts of cuck. So I guess the biggest help when you're fishing or when you're trying to learn how to fly cast is understanding that you're not actually trying to throw the thing that's on the end of your fly line, which is the fly, you're trying to cast the line itself. And here's where Andre tells us it's not about looking pretty. There's all this bullshit about how it's all arty and it's, a, you know, it's a beautiful oh, bollocks. Fly casting is pure mathematics. And oh, obviously, like most things, <laughs> no, well, pure, whatever it is. Like most things, if it's done well, it, it, it looks like art and it looks beautiful and bloody, bloody, blah, blah, but it's worth kind of looking at it from a mathematical side. I'm not going to give you formulas or anything like that, but in terms of there's elements to it. So you just create, concentrate on those three elements or four, whatever those elements are, putting them together and don't worry about it, how it looks, and it'll work. Some of the best fly courses I know have a very ugly style, but fuck, they can put a fly out there. So trying to look pretty is not worth it. I almost believed Andre, but in about 50 seconds, he's going to say this. That wasn't Brad Pitt. Do you hate that movie? No, I love it. I can quote no, that entire amazing. film. A fly fishing reel is the only part of the setup that looks less complicated than its conventional counterpart. It's a beautifully machined metal drum around which the fly line is wound. But the handle you would hold to reel in is very small, definitely not designed to be for constant or heavy use. For a lot of fly fishing, it's just something to hold the line. With fly fishing, you're not casting and then reeling in like you would be with lure fishing or anything like that. You're stripping the line in with your hand. And I think a huge part of the attraction of fly fishing when you hook a fish is you physically are feeling Hmm. with both hands it's not like you're feeling tuck 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 okay nuts you know like that no, you're right. actually and i think for a lot of us when you break it down that co connection is what keeps a lot of us coming back the fly itself was large and colorful and attached to a final length of monofilament called the leader as andre explained the line the fly the rod and the reel i had to restrain myself from shouting get on with it in a monty python voice i just wanted to see him cast Finally, he did, and you can hear the reaction from the group. Yeah. Oh, that's good to know, because the, you have to take things like wind into yeah, account. Yeah, yeah. And you can see that they're crazy about the game. No, that's a are, stupid... Dude, I found them... Wow, everyone shut the fuck up really hard there. There's something undeniably artistic about the lazy flight of a fly fisherman's line, that feels old-fashioned, graceful, measured, calm, and expressive. Andre whipped the rod back and forth a few times, allowing more line to run through his hand at the end of each movement. The line began to describe bigger and bigger loops, the fly shooting back and forth, very much the passenger on the line train than the other way around. With a final forward whip, he released the remaining line, pointed the rod forward, and the fly sailed at least 15 meters before settling gently in the grass. It's like watching Brad Pitt. <laughs> that wasn't Brad Pitt. That Do you hate that movie? No, I love it. I can quote no, that entire amazing. film. Okay. Of cool. Who was it? Jason Borges, though. I think that was No, I don't lie. It was Brad Pitt. That's no, well my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> also, George Clooney went to space. So, let's just drop Sorry. it there. Holy fuck! Sorry, that was just that was impressive. Okay, so... I can't fully explain fly casting through audio. 
As I took my turn to try it out, I was attempting to synthesize all the analogies and advice that Andre had given us. The rod is an extremely expensive pointing device. Move your elbow back and forth like it's on a shelf. Accelerate and stop. Move between the 10 and 2 positions. It's a lot like a whip. I almost immediately hit myself in the back of the head with the fly. We were practicing with a hookless fly, but I was keenly aware that in half an hour or so there would be a sharp little piece of metal flitting back and forth past my face at hundreds of kilometers an hour. A bullwhip cracks not because it's hitting the floor, but because it's creating a sonic boom. A fly line uses the same forces, but because of the leader and the fuzzy fly, it's very difficult to break the sound barrier. Which is good, because causing sonic booms right above a fish's head probably isn't going to make it hungry. Learning to cast at a mediocre level isn't too hard, and we had a helpful wind at our back. Within half an hour, Sergio and I understood the basic concept, and the more experienced anglers picked up some tips and corrections from Andre and Platin. First evening's fishing trip. With everyone equipped with two rods, one for grunter and one for cob, we ventured forth along the dirt track overgrown with wild hay. It was at this point that I caught my first tick, or it caught me. It was stuck to the bottom of my right ankle and I wasn't pleased. Tom assured me that it has to be attached for a good few hours before there's a chance it'll give you tick bite fever. I reluctantly cancelled my panic attack, scraped the little bastard off with a fingernail, and manfully strode onward, feeling very hardcore. There was a definite sense of being a pack of hunting animals at this point. Like we've talked about in previous episodes of The Hard Way, spending time together in uncomfortable situations binds people together, and so does performing an activity as a group. As a group, we were headed out to pit our knowledge, logic, experience, and superior technology against the wily instincts of a fish. And that's when I started to learn something from not catching a fish. My five-day Sisyphean boulder roll started with a 20-minute hike across slippery rocks and through knee-deep mud to our first destination. Sergio and I were both wearing gym trainers rather than the more solid boots the other members of the party had, and the going was slow. Finally, we caught up with the group on the edge of a rocky outcrop. Andre pointed out the lay of the land and advised that we wade out into the water and fish backwards towards the shore. That way the wind would be behind us, making casting easier and safer. Don't be all coy and cool and land a fish without telling anybody. Because we won't fucking believe you yeah. <laughs> if you don't have photo evidence. No photo, yeah. Finally, we were ready to get started. It's a beautiful evening. The sun is just coming out from behind a little cloud. It's been kind of shining down a silver light on the water, which is now turning more yellow as we go towards dusk. I'm pulling my little fly back to the rod. It's now here, and now you can enjoy the sound of me casting. Fucking bastard. That's it for part one of our adventures in Karul's Kraal. In the next episode, we'll cover the rest of the trip, including bulls, drinking, naps, other people catching fish, and me post-rationalizing the fact that I caught none. I also got Andre and Tom's perspective on the trip. If the fact that we've split the story into two parts enrages you, please go and find The Hard Way in iTunes and give us a five-star review, or worse yet, share it with your friends. That would really show us. Thanks very much for listening.